Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919 919- Two seven five four four seven seven. Enjoy the Bible study. And verse eight, just one verse tonight. Uh, we're obviously not moving past through chapter thirteen, but uh, there are a lot of um, just uh, kind of individual, in a sense, challenges. Maybe one verse, two verses, that type of thing. And uh, as I mentioned last week in the uh, introduction. Uh, this is not just haphazardly given. Uh, It's in light of everything that has been uh, brought to light earlier in the book, uh, challenging the people that they should come if they're not true believers, but uh, professing believers come on to true faith in the Lord uh, and put their trust in the Lord. Uh, If they are true believers, that they are to be encouraged in the Lord Uh, But the concern being is all these false teachers that they have around. Uh, Because at the same time in the history of Israel, you had the Judaizers uh, that were mixing uh, uh, Judaism uh, law with grace and that type of thing. So last week we looked at uh, the teachers. And and God uh, uh, commended their past teachers and their present teachers who taught the word of God to them to be highly esteemed uh, in the faith. And that's uh, those who teach the word of God, but also it goes on in verse 7, and by their conversation in, uh, in life, toward the end of their life, to, the point at the, uh, to death, in other words, that they lived the life uh, up until when they died. Uh, and, and this is for people in the past, the teachers, 17 as teachers in the present, but they are to be highly esteemed. Uh, They are to be grateful for those who taught them uh, good doctrine, correct doctrine, in light of the false teaching that abounded. Well, when we come to verse 8, I'm just going to read what I put here. Uh, After exhorting the readers in verse 7, to remember those leaders who have taught you the word of God and followed the Lord until their death, the writer of Hebrews draws attention to the only one who won't leave us. Uh, Jesus is the same forever because he is Jehovah God. He is ever-present, will never fail us. And so we need to be very careful about elevating a leader, a teacher. As godly as that individual might be, and in this case is, because that's what he is in verse 7, admonishing is the wrong way, exhorting them to do, uh, as godly as that individual might be, he is not going to be around forever. You know, one day, uh, even if he lives a long life, 
uh, if he's 60 and you're 30, uh, more than likely he's going before you're going. Just, you know, that's, you know, that's just the way it is. So we should, we should, we should, uh, we should um, uh, esteem our leaders. We should uh, appreciate our leaders. We should take care of our, and these are the leaders who, who minister in, in the word and have lived the life. But we should not be wedded to those leaders. The only one we should be wedded to is one who, will, who is the same as verse 8 says, yesterday, today, and forever. And that's the Lord. So I, I think we have verse 8 here because we are susceptible, and perhaps more in this age, although I think this is uh, germane to the human sinful condition, but, but we are so susceptible to following men. Um, it's just, it's endemic in the human race. Um, we, we can see it with unsaved people in the political realm. We can see it in the religious world. I mean, we can see it in, 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 in almost every type of um, discipline that you can find. Um, and so we've got to be careful. You know, it's one thing to esteem a leader and admire a leader even and want to uh, emulate the leader, you know, uh, you know, be like that leader, in other words, um, because of his godliness. But we shouldn't be wedded to him because he could be, even if he lives a long life, he's still going to die one day. But his, his life can be cut off instantaneously. Car wreck in the world we live in today. Uh, and so verse 8 reminds us that the one that we should be focused on ultimately Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Uh, and that is so, so important because, again, um, when we attended, um, we attended uh, Grace Community Church in San Fernando Valley, in the, where was it, Sun Valley? Was that the city? Sun Valley, California. San Fernando Valley was the, uh, whatever it was. But anyway, that's a bigger area. Sun Valley was the city. John MacArthur was the pastor. Uh, it was a church that on uh, any given Sunday, when he was preaching, they had two services. They had a huge auditorium. Uh, the auditorium sat uh, about 3,500 people, one floor, no balcony. Um, and um, when he was preaching, both services would be full. I mean, it would be difficult even to find a, to a seat. Uh, so they, they had 7,000 people that attended regularly when he preached. When he was gone, probably 4,000. So the 7,000 attendants went to 4,000. Now, I'm sure some of them had legitimate reasons for not being there. But my guess is the vast majority of 3,000 of them, well, John's not going to be here. Dr. MacArthur's not going to be here, so I'm not going to go today because nobody measures up to Dr. John and, and his ability to preach. Uh, well, he, certainly he, was, he is a good preacher. Uh, you know, whether you agree with all his doctrines or not, he's a very good preacher. Uh, those, a lot of those people are following men. Yes, you want a pastor who teaches the Word of God, who rightly divides the Word of Truth. It's, it's a blessing if he is eloquent, um, you know, that, 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 he, that, that 
you're not bored, as it were, when, when he preaches. Um, but boredom, do you, or do you realize that boredom is a very recent word to the English language? Boredom was introduced into the English language, if I remember correctly, and I could be wrong, in the, um, I think in the 1800s, like 1840, 1870, maybe the late 18th century, the late 1700s. Um, but, but, the, but the word that boredom comes from, or the idea that it comes from, um, is the biblical term slothfulness. Now, if you're slothful, what that means is that you are not um, investing yourself in that endeavor. So boredom is not the result of a, of a, of a preacher or a communicator or whatever the case might be that's not doing a good job. Boredom falls on the listener. I'm bored. Well, you're not willing to invest into what is happening to get something out of it. And so he's not boring. You're slothful. You're not, and, and that's, the, that's the background of the word boredom. So if, if you say you're bored, what you're really doing is you're pointing a finger at yourself that I am not willing to invest my mind and myself, in this case, into listening to a message, to get something out of it. Even the, even the most boring preacher, who is monotone, if he's preaching the Word of God, you can learn something, and you can get something. But you have to, you have to force yourself more so to listen with that type of individual than with somebody who is a better orator uh, who, can, who can grab your attention. Now, I would much rather have a pastor who labors in doctrine, but who's a great, an excellent orator as well. But not everybody is like that. Um, so, um, how did I get off on all that? I'm sure, you know, so. But anyway, see, Bob is already bored back there, sitting back there. Um, anyway, um, He's reminding this that even 3,000 people shouldn't have skipped church when John MacArthur was gone because they didn't think anybody could measure up to him. Are they going there for a man or are they going there to worship God? And that's the, that's the fellowship the, uh, of community of believers that God has called them to be with. Um, you can answer the question for yourself there. So we've we got to be careful about following an individual. Uh, you, the, the teacher's responsibility, the preacher's responsibility, as it says in verse 7, is to labor in the word, doctrine, and teach it. And unfortunately, a lot of preachers today don't do that. Um, so when I was first saved, um, oh, I... And, he was, he was a great, he loved to witness, but we would have a Friday night Bible study. I was a couple of months in the Lord, six months, whatever. And when we would be driving to the Bible study, which he's teaching, he said, he would say, Mark, you got to drive, because i got to put together a lesson. 
I didn't know. And I was a month in the Lord. And, and as I'm driving and we're 20 minutes on the road or 15 minutes, sometimes less, he's thumbing through the Bible trying to get a few verses together to, to teach a Bible lesson. That's not laboring in the Word. Um, anyway, um, so, 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 the, so the, the admonition is Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. And that has to be our focus, not the preacher, the teacher, although we can follow him. Paul said, follow me as I follow the Lord, follow Christ. And that's good, that's fine. But ultimately, our focus is on the Lord. Because good preachers have fallen. And even in verse 7, it's talking about those who haven't fallen, those who have died that we can look back at. But we don't want, we don't want to elevate dead saints. You know, we, we, the, the, the church today has a way of elevating dead saints and making them a lot more saintly than they ever were alive. Now, I cringe every time a pastor extols one of the church fathers, um, Augustine, um, Justin Martyr. You know, these guys had all kinds of problems. Um, yeah, was uh, yeah, I don't even know. I, personally, I'm not even convinced that uh, Augustine or Augustine, however you want to pronounce, I'm not even convinced this guy was saved. Uh, he was the father, the theological father of Roman Catholicism. He believed in, uh, you know, anyway. Um, and, and yet you find preachers in the pulpit who are talking about he's the greatest theologian, you know, certainly since Paul, which would have been roughly uh, 200 years or so earlier. Um, anyway, we've got to be careful. Um, and we can all go down the list. Um, we should let the dead saints lie, uh, by and large. It's not wrong to read biographies. That's remembering them. Uh, but you better make sure that you're remembering someone who pretty much had it together. Jesus Christ is the one we need to focus on. Now, one of the things initially I want to cover, what, what, what this does not mean, because this is so abused. Uh, when, when I've heard it many times said, uh, and it's oftentimes in the Pentecostal charismatic realm, when it says Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever, that means that what happened in the past biblically continues forever. And oftentimes it comes to the point of uh, something like the gifts. Well, what, you know, God gave the gifts to the church. You know, he gave tongues, he gave healing, and yada, yada, yada. And so that is for today. And, 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 and what Jesus did yesterday uh, is for today, and it's forever. And he gave tongues, and so that, you know, that type of thing. That's not what this verse is speaking of. Actually, and we're going to get into it shortly, what it does mean, that Jesus is Jehovah, the eternal God. Uh, but, but just think with me. Is everything that God did in the past mean that he carries through into the future? Um, for example, does God change his plan at different times in history? The Mosaic Law or the Law of Christ? God gave the Mosaic Law which is more than the Ten Commandments, which is a whole sacrificial system and ceremonial parts of it, is that for today? No. If it was, we better be on our way to Jerusalem because um, you know, we have to offer sacrifices. 
Uh, now, things change. Uh, there are no longer requirements of a sacrifice in a temple. Uh, the clothing requirements under the law. You couldn't mix fabrics. You know, how many of us are wearing a garment right now that's part cotton and part polyester or whatever? You know, instead of all cotton. Well, that was forbidden to mix fabrics under the Mosaic Law. Probably just to keep them separate. The, the, the basic purpose of the law was to make them distinct. No other reason than that. Same, same with the food laws. The food laws were not dietary. The food laws were not for health. The food laws were to keep them distinct from the nations of the world. That was the whole purpose of the law for the nation of Israel. Individually, it shows our sin. Uh, but but I've, I've met many... I remember when we were in San Diego, we lived, so this had to be, I don't know, 25 years ago, 30 years ago. I, I met with a man who wrote a book. His big thing was you've got to keep the dietary laws of the Mosaic system, and then you're going to be healthy. You know? and, and he said, God, this is what God wants of us. God requires of it, of it yada, yada. So I met, and, and I don't remember how I met him, but I remember meeting with him and reasoning with him and saying, you know, God, if, if God requires the dietary laws because he wants us to be healthy, well, then God said the law is one. It's a whole. You can't pick and choose what you want to follow. So if you, want, if you think the dietary laws are still for today, that means the ceremonial laws are for today as well. We have to have a temple. We have to have sacrifices. Well, he wasn't buying. Well, he said, no, when Jesus sacrificed himself for our sins, that did away with the sacrifices, but the food laws re remain. It's like talking to a wall. You know, he should go to Jerusalem to the western wall and talk to the wall. But anyway, um, you, you couldn't get through to him. It was all done away with. That, that has nothing to do with food. Nothing to do with food. That has everything to do with Gentiles being accepted by God. Peter was questioning Gentiles coming to the faith. And he gave a vis vision of these unclean things. It says what, but it was a picture, it was an illustration of Gentiles who were not looked at, who were not part of Israel, just as being Gentiles, but now they were, if they're saved, part of the church. You didn't have to become part of Israel. And there was just a vision saying Gentiles are now on the same standing in the church as Jews. That's the whole purpose of it. That has nothing to do with diet. Nothing to do with food laws, that vision. Nothing whatsoever. Read it in this context. It all has to do with Gentiles coming to the Lord. And Gentiles today in this dispensation are on equal footing with Jewish people. Back under the Mosaic law, under that dispensation, if a Gentile came to the Lord... He needed, he needed to be a convert to Israel, and he needed to live in the commonwealth of Israel under the Mosaic law to be obedient. And not a lot of Gentiles came to the Lord, so there weren't many that did that, but that's what they needed to do. Today, you don't have to do that. That's what that vision is all about. Um, and um, <clears throat> it, it is such a mis... And, and Buzz is not here. Bless his heart. He must knew I was going to go into this tonight. 
Um, you know, but Buzz always says, kill and eat, kill and eat. You know, we can eat pork. That has nothing. Okay. The Bible allows you to eat pork. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll admit it. I will say it um, in this dispensation. But you don't prove that from that vision. Don't use what's meant for something else to prove something else. We can eat pork today, or shrimp for that matter, uh, because the Mosaic Law has been done away with. It's not because of that vision. That has nothing to do with dietary requirements or law. Um, so um, don't tell Buzz I said we can eat pork. But anyway, but if you're really spiritual, you won't. No, I'm just kidding. But anyway, um, you'll tell him. I know. You, yes, yes. So, Okay. Well, it's being recorded. He can listen to this. Buzz, you can listen to this. So anyway, uh, but what it doesn't mean is that what God did sometime in the past doesn't mean he carries throughout history. Um, we don't have apostles today. Apostle, I mean, we can just go on and on in this vein. Apostles were, were foundational to the church. Uh, and there were actually signs of an apostle to authenticate their ministry. Well, if anybody could do the signs of an apostle, how, and that's um, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, I believe is, is the verse, um, where it talks about signs uh, of an apostle. Let me make sure it's actually that. Um, is it 12, 12 or 12? Yeah. yeah um, And it says this, truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Well, if any, any, old, any old Christian could do these signs, in what way would it be a sign of an apostle then? These signs of, as it says in verse 12, uh, signs and wonders and mighty deeds uniquely put the mark of authenticity upon the apostles. There are only 12 apostles. You know, Paul took the place of, of one of them, Mattathias, but there were not a lot of apostles. So you, and, and in Ephesians chapter 2, it says that the apostles were the foundation. The apostles and the prophets were the foundation of the church, Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. Well, the ch and it goes on and says the church is a building. And a building, when you, when you build a building, how many times do you lay the foundation? One time. Then you put the first floor, the second floor, the third floor, and so on. You don't relay the foundation. And since we are certainly towards the end of the church age, the foundation was laid 2,000 years ago. There's no apostles today, and so on. So it, what it means then, and we're, this is what we're going to look at tonight, when it says Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever, the very first thing it does, it, it really establishes that Jesus is Jehovah, the eternal God. And it's, in, a, in a sense, this is bringing us full circle. 
Uh, we're going to look at some of the earlier verses in Hebrews chapter 1. But in chapter 1, when it's, when it's talking about the Son and, and, and the supremacy of the Son, and that the Son, who we ultimately find out in Hebrews 2.9 is Jesus, the Son is better than the angels, and it gives a number of, of Scripture passages from the earlier Scriptures, the Old Testament, showing why is the Son better than the angels? He's God. And Hebrews chapter 1 is, is one of the strongest portions of the Word of God establishing that Jesus is Jehovah God. So this brings us at the end of the book, full circle, why should we focus on Jesus and not good godly teachers? Because he is the Lord. He is God. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the Bible is very clear that Jesus is Jehovah. He's God. Uh, Isaiah 9, 6, and I've just put down a few of the verses. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now when it talks about a child is born, that's talking of his humanity. Because the Messiah was born into this world as a man. Born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin. But unto us a child is born. But the next phrase speaks of his deity. Yes, he was a child born, speaking of his humanity. But the next phrase, unto us a son is given. He's a child born, but he's a son given. Whose son was he? Who gave him? God. Think of John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And that speaks of his deity. A son given, he's eternal God. He is part of the triune Godhead. He is the God-man. Isaiah is saying that. We get the same type of thing, by the way, from Micah 5.2. But thou Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, Yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from of old, from everlasting. So we are told that out of Bethlehem will come the king, the ruler. He will be born in Bethlehem. Being born in Bethlehem speaks of his humanity. He is man. But then we have in the latter part of this verse, whose goings forth, as speaking of this one born in Bethlehem, Jesus, have been from of old, from everlasting. Now, I didn't put down any of the other verses that we could have looked at, uh, but Psalm 90, for example, uh, I think it's verses 1 and 2, maybe verse 2 uh, specifically, where it says, the Lord, Jehovah, is from everlasting to everlasting. So when we have this one born in Bethlehem, that speaks of his humanity. But his goings forth, not his beginnings, by the way, which I think is how, anybody have the NIV here? I think that's how the NIV translated it, beginnings. 
um, or his origins. It translates it origins. Well, he didn't have an origin, not as deity. And that destroys his deity, his goings forth. In other words, he, he was active from eternal past, eternity past, because he's God, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Speaking of his deity, he's the God-man. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. And this is the same thing here. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I'll raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. So coming from the loins of David will come a king who will rule and reign. Well, if he's coming from the loins of David, and this doesn't mean directly from David, it would be one of David's descendants, and um, uh, Joseph was in the line of David, so, so was Mary, for that matter, going back to uh, uh, in the Davidic line, speaks of his humanity, because he's descending from David. He's a descendant of David. He's born into the family of David. He's human. But then it says in verse 6, In his days Judah shall be saved, Israel shall dwell safely, and this is his name whereby he shall be called. The Lord, Jehovah, our righteousness. So he's going to be called the Lord because he is the Lord. So he is the God-man, deity. And by the way, the context of Jeremiah 23, in his days Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely, it's not the first coming. It's the second coming. It's the second coming. Because as you read in the next two verses, 7 and 8, talks about uh, one day that the Jewish people will not uh, speak of the Lord God who brought them out of Egypt, but they will speak of the Lord God who brought them from the four corners of the earth. Worldwide return. Um, <clears throat> and in that context, by the way, and I, you know, when you go on in Jeremiah 23, you know, we, may get, we may study Jeremiah next time. You know, after we finish Hebrews, we may do Jeremiah. I've never done Jeremiah. Um, at least verse by verse. So maybe we'll do Jeremiah. Now, Jer I'm, I'm digressing a little bit here. Jeremiah was a contemporary, if you remember, of Ezekiel. The different, they overlapped in ministry time. The difference was, where was Ezekiel when he ministered and wrote his book? Babylon. You know, um, right from the very beginning, he, he, he was by the river Shabar in Babylon. Where was Jeremiah at the same time period, roughly, when he wrote and when he ministered? Jerusalem. So, same time period, same type of issues, but they had a different focus oftentimes because they were in two different locales. Uh, so maybe we'll do Jeremiah. We'll see. Um, it's going to be weeks before we get through Hebrew 13, it seems, the way we're going. But anyway. Um, okay. Um, so this speaks of, of the deity and the humanity. He is Jehovah. He is God. Uh, oh, I, I, what I was going to say, when you go on into um, the end of chapter 23, <coughs> it talks about, it, it, this is end times, and it talks about false prophets. And it talks about people being deceived by the message of these false prophets. And, and he compares the message, 
And, and how do they, 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 how do the false prophets, I'm paraphrasing now, deceive the people? By their tongues, by their language, and by their dreams, and by their visions. And then what God says at the end of chapter 23, in that portion, he says, how can you, he says, um, he's comparing uh, the dreams uh, how could, uh, the dreams to my word, uh, and the dreams are nothing, and, and, and the, my word is, uh, I'm trying to remember now, like an anvil uh, that a blacksmith, and, 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 and it just, it's strong, and, 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 that, and the dreams are, are nothing. Uh, I think that prophecy at the end of Jeremiah has to do with the last days that we're living in, um, when we've got the rise in that. Anyway, it's all last days, when it, in chapter 23. Almost all of it, if not all of it. Um, so, Zechariah 12.10. And I will pour upon the house of David, upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Now, in the context, the I will pour upon the house of David. The, the I is Jehovah. If you would go back and read verses 8 and 9, it is Jehovah that is speaking. So Jehovah saying, I, Jehovah, will pour upon the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplications. And they, the inhabitants, shall look upon me. Who is the me? Well, it's the Jesus, yes, but we haven't gotten to the, you know. It's Jehovah. It's the I. The I is Jehovah God speaking. And I'm going to pour upon the house of David the, the spirit of grace, and, and they shall look upon me. Me is the speaker, the I, Jehovah, whom they have pierced. Now, who was pierced? Jesus. Who, so, but, but Jehovah was pierced? Yeah. Not, not pierced as God. Not that he wasn't ever God. He was still God. But he was pierced in his humanity, he was crucified as a man. But Je Jehovah, and, and actually, the, the, it's not the crucifixion here, it's the spear in the side that's the fulfillment. But the only way you can put a spear in the side of Jehovah is if Jehovah became man. Um, and this is what this is saying here. Jesus is Jehovah. We have the same teaching when we come into the New Testament or the later Revelation. Uh, John 1, 1 and 14. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word was made flesh. So the Word was in the beginning. The Word was with God. The Word was God. So the Word was with the Father. The Word was God. And the Word was made flesh. So if the Word was God, who became human? Who, who became flesh? God. God, yes, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God took on flesh. Or John 8, 56 through 59. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and was glad. Jesus is speaking. Abraham saw my day. The Jews understood what he said, the Jews at that time. You're not even 50 years old, Jesus. And has thou seen Abraham? 
So he Jesus responded, verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am, deity. Before Abraham even came into the world, I was there, because I am the eternal God. They understood he was declaring deity, proclaiming to be Jehovah, because what did they do? They took up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the way, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. They took up stones to, 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 uh, to cast at him because he claimed to be God. We also have, turn the page over, John 10, 30 through 33. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. Again, the Jews understood what he was saying. They took up stones to stone him. He answered, Jesus answered, many good works have I showed you from my Father. What a, which of these works do you stone me? They answered, the Jews answered, for good work we don't stone thee, for blasphemy. For thou, being a man, makest thyself God. They understood very clearly that Jesus was claiming to be God. Now, they had it a little bit wrong. Thou being a man, makest thyself God. No man can become a God. Sorry, Mormons. No man can make themselves a God. But God can become a man. And if you're ever talking, like a Jewish person, well, we, we don't believe a man can become a God. You know what? I agree 100% with you. You are dead on right. I agree that I believe the same thing, that man cannot ever become God. But that's not what Bible-believing Christians believe, that man became a God. What we do believe is that God became man, took on flesh. And then what you can do, if need be, you can go back to the Theophanies, if you have time, and show them in the earlier scripture, the Jewish scripture, the Jewish Bible, if you want to call it that, so many times, Genesis 14, Genesis 18, Judges 13, uh, Genesis 32, uh, where, where theophany, where you had a visible appearance of God in the flesh. And it's very clear that God became man, not through the incarnation, that's the uniqueness of Jesus, but just taking on flesh. Um, one of these days, one of these days I'm going to do a whole bunch of stuff. One of these days. Um, but years ago, and I think I've told you the story, and I, and I have found the dialogue. I need to spruce it up a little bit. Not change it, but check it, change it grammatically anyway. But um, I, I received a phone call, I think it was, from, we were living in San Diego, maybe Oceanside at the time, that's San Diego area. And I received a phone call from a lady up in San Jose. And this was at the time when the Jesus Seminar was really going strong. And the Jesus Seminar was a group of liberal scholars who were trying to determine what did Jesus actually say in the New Testament. You know, how much of his is really his. And they, they, ultimately they boiled it down to maybe 10 or 12 percent of the sayings 
attributed to Jesus were actually his, the other were, others were not. And, and these were a whole uh, cadre of scholars, I don't know, 20 or 30 or 40 that were, were debating this. They would have a seminar, and yeah. So how did they determine whether, whether it was true or not, because they had differences of opinion. So they had three stones. One was black, one was red, as I remember, and one was white. And the blacks was, he didn't write it. And the red was, he did write it. And, and, and I could be off in the colors and so on. And, and I think there's a third one. The white was, I don't know. So they ultimately, when they debated this, then they say, okay, let's vote. And, and they each picked up the colored stone that they thought was correct, and the majority ruled. And that's how they determined whether he said it or not. So anyway, uh, this um, uh, rocket astrophysicist, Jewish man, had written an article for the, uh, uh, I think it was the San, San Jose Mercury News, I think was the name of the paper. And this Christian lady was exercised over it. She wanted me to write this guy and debate him on, this, on, the, on the Jesus movement. And she went to the trouble of getting this guy's address, this scientist, this astrophysicist, whatever he was. Um, and so I said, OK, I'll write him. Now, this was prior to email. This is snail mail time. This was back in the 80s. You know, there was no such thing as email. I, you know, we don't have any young kids with us. They wouldn't understand this at all. This is when you, you know, you know I didn't even, I don't even know if I had an electric typewriter. I think I had an electric typewriter back then, you know. My Hewlett Packard electric typewriter that I, you know. I didn't even have an IBM selector. That was for the rich people. Top of the line. I, I had the HP uh, electric one. And uh, anyway, so, you know, we, we, I wrote a letter and mailed it off, and two weeks later I get a mail back, a letter back, and I'd write another letter, and yada, yada. And I told this guy, I have to make this story shorter. Um, you know, I'm not really interested. In, I, I talked to him about the Jesus seminar, how foolish I thought it was about the, the stones, and yada, and he tried to defend that. He said, I don't really want to talk to you about the... Uh, the, um, you know, the Jesus seminar and what Jesus wrote, what Jesus didn't wrote. As far as I'm concerned, everything he wrote, not just the words in red. Uh, but anyway, I'd like to talk to you about who Jesus is, being the Messiah, being the Lord himself, Jehovah God. And he said, I'd love to. He says, I've talked to all kinds of Christians through the years. I've never had a good defense of what Christians believe. They're ignoramuses. Now, he may not have used that word, but that's... He said, they're dumb. They don't know what they believe, yada, yada. I said, well, that's fine. Let's do that. And he said, good. I'm looking forward to it. So I got into, ultimately, about Jesus being God and theophanies and then that type of thing. And to make a long story short, um, I, we were in uh, Genesis chapter 18. If you remember Genesis 18, and Abraham and those three men come to him. One is the Lord, theophany. The other are two angels. You know, the two angels go down to Sodom and Gomorrah, chapter 19, and so on. Anyway, I, I'm walking him through this. And this is over a period, you know, it would have been nice to have email. You know, it's instantaneous, pretty much, but snail mail. So, you know, I have to wait two weeks for his answer, and then, I, you know, that type of thing. Um, and, and his argument was 
Jewish people don't believe what you're telling me. And I wrote back and I said, well, number one, that's not true. I'm Jewish and I believe it. But number two, it didn't matter what Jewish people believe. What does the text say? And, and I go over the text again and say it. And the long and the short of it, the last letter he wrote, he says, I don't want to continue this discussion anymore. And he said, but for the first time in my life, I've had a good defense of what Christians believe. Um, his argument went back to tradition. That was his whole argument, ultimately. We just don't believe. And, he, and even in the body of number of these letters, he might have once said, we don't believe that God became, not, we don't believe that man became God. And I have, and this goes back to the 80s now, uh, and, I, and I just found these six, a year ago again, after, you know, um, so I got to go back and read them, but I, I'm, I'm most certain if he did make that, I would have said, well, I don't agree either, that man became God, because that's not what Christians believe, and so on. Um, okay. Okay. Uh, Look at, um, look at 1 Timothy 3.16. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached on the Gentiles, believed on the world, received up into glory. God was revealed in the flesh. I mean, how, how much clearer can you get? He was revealed in the flesh in whom? Jesus. He was justified in the spirit, not salvationally. He didn't need to be saved, but the spirit um, uh, um, approved of his ministry, uh, and the spirit led him around. He was seen of angels. He was preached unto the Gentiles. He was believed on in the world. We find that, and then he was also received into glory. This is the Lord. This is Jesus, God in the flesh. Very clear. And then you have Hebrews one, which has so much. Uh, Verse 1-3, uh, the Son is God, by whom also he made the world. The Son made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory. In other words, the Son is not a reflector of the glory of God. He's not a reflector of that light. He is the source of that light. Samuel Riddell, in his lectures on Hebrews, put it this way. All that God is, not merely in his ways, but in his being is expressed absolutely by the Son. No one has grasped what the Son of God is until he has prostrated his soul before him. God over all, blessed forever, Romans 9, 5. I would that I could put it so strongly that every soul would bow to the truth of it. The absolutely essential, perfect divinity of the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. We admit not one iota of a question not one shadow of a doubt, not one bit of tarnish upon that glory which God has spread before us on this page. I love the way he expressed it. Uh, eloquent, but right to the point. You know, there is no doubt. Uh, it's absolutely essential. Uh, there's not one iota of a question. There's not one shadow of a doubt. There's not one bit of tarnish that Jesus is the glory of God, very God himself. We need to have that kind of understanding. Uh, the express image of his person. In other words, the Son is everything God would be in substance if God took on human form. 
In other words, if God became man, we'd expect him to be Jesus. He'd live like Jesus. He'd do everything that Jesus did because Jesus is God. Not was God. He is God. MacArthur put it this way on this phrase. Exact representation translates the Greek term used for the impression made by a die or stamp on a seal. The design on the die is reproduced on the wax. Jesus Christ is the reproduction of God. He is the perfect, personal imprint of God in time and space. Colossians 1.15 gives a similar illustration of this incomprehensible truth. He is the image of the invisible God. The word image here is icon, from which we get icon. Icon means a precise copy, an exact reproduction, as in a fine sculpture or portrait. To call Christ the icon or the, uh, the icon or the echion of God means he is the exact reproduction of God. For in him, Colossians 2.9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He's the exact reproduction of God because he is very God who became man. Then we are told in Hebrews 1, he upholds all things by the word of his power. He holds the world together. He's also worshipped by angels. And I'm not going to read the, the rest of this because of time. Uh, but the quoting there and, and basically, you know, we... We went over this when we looked at Hebrews chapter 1, but um, he upholds everything by his power. Go to the next page. Angels and men are to worship God only. See Psalm 148, 2 through 5. But what we have in this section we're talking about, Jesus is worshipped by angels. Jesus is worshipped by men also. I have one passage down here, John 9. There's, there are many, many others. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said unto him, Does thou believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talks with thee. I am, Jesus was saying, Son of God. And he said, Lord, I believe and he worshiped him. The only one that is due worship is Jehovah God. When he worshiped Jesus, Jesus didn't say, hey, you got it all wrong. You know, I'm here representing the Father, but I'm not God, so don't worship me. Many, many times in the Gospels we'll find people worshiping Jesus, and he accepts that worship because these people recognize that he is very God himself, Jehovah God. In verses 8 and 9 of chapter 1, the Son is God the King. Verses 10 through 12 of chapter 1 of Hebrews, the Son is the Creator. In verse 13, the Son sits on the right hand of God. Hebrews chapter 1, again, as I said earlier, probably as well or better than any other portion of the Word of God, or is at least equal to, teaches that Jesus is God. You, you have to be unsaved to reject it, or willfully blind. 
if you believe was uh, that's why the, when um, you know, we talked about this before that that teacher at the IBEX program in Israel uh, who was under the the master college John MacArthur was the president of that college when when he denied the deity of Jesus a couple of years ago now I guess maybe a year ago I forget time frame and denied the Trinity um, and said he'd been struggling with it for 20 years and, and he was fired he, he's still denying it to this very day as I know recently I heard he was so I, I would imagine it's still true he's an unbeliever it, it is there's so many passages from Genesis to Revelation that establish that Jesus is Jehovah Jesus is God and when we have the phrase he is the same yesterday today and forever it is it is claiming he's God and what that also means point number two what never changes is his character not his plans his plans does change in, in the last dispensation he worked through Israel but now he's working through the church he's going to go back to working through Israel in the future his, 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 his plans can change and what he but his character he never changes because he's God and his character never changes he's always faithful he's always true he's always just uh, he is omnipotent and omniscient his character never changes in Isaiah 53 9 it says this talking about his death he made his grave with the wicked with the rich in his death he had done no violence neither was any deceit in his mouth externally internally he's perfect 2nd Corinthians 5 20 and 21 now then we are ambassadors for Christ believer as though God did beseech you by us we pray you in Christ's stead be you reconciled to God we are ambassadors uh, uh, for Christ literally when we, we, we encourage someone to come to the Lord uh, it's as if God is speaking through us we are his mouthpiece but it's literally as if God is speaking through us encouraging that person to come to the Lord then the last part verse 21 for he had made him Jesus to be sin and it's properly understood not to be made sin Jesus was the perfect Lamb of God he never sinned he never became sin he became a sin offering for he had made him to be a sin offering for us who knew no sin Jesus never knew sin never sinned that we might be made the righteousness of God in him and then in Hebrews 1 12 as a vesture shalt thou fold them up and they shall be changed but thou art the same and thy years shall not fail this is the first chapter speaking of Jesus you will never ever fail you are eternal you're the same yesterday today and forever his divine attributes make it impossible for him to sin one of his attributes that he always has immutability here's what it says that means his basic nature never changes 
He was holy in eternity past. He remains holy now. Psalm 90, verse 2. And I, I, this, is the, this is the verse I was mentioning earlier, tied in with Micah 5, 2. Thou art from everlasting. Here's what Psalm 92 says. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting thou art God. You're always God. You never change. Omnipotence. Falling to temptation shows moral weakness, lack of power and ability. Christ had infinite power. He was not susceptible to sin. He was tempted, but he could not fall into that temptation. The 115th Psalm, verse 3, But our God is in the heavens. He had done whatsoever he had pleased. He cannot sin. Then the omniscience. God knows everything. Satan tempts us by attempting to deceive us. Jesus, having infinite knowledge, could not be deceived. Here are some of the verses about God. Great is our Lord of great power. His understanding is infinite, unending. With whom took he counsel? Talking about God. Who instructed him, taught him in the path of judgment, taught him knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding? Does God, God need a counselor? Does God need a teacher? No. He knows everything. And then in uh, Isaiah 66, 18, for I know their works and their thoughts. It shall come that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. He knows all their works. He knows all their thoughts. That's amazing. Luke 12, 7. But even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you have more value than many sparrows. God knows the numbers, the hairs on every head. It's more difficult for some of us for him to keep track than others. Uh, because some of us don't have a lot of hair. It's very easy. But he knows it, it's never hard for him. But then in uh, Acts 15, 18, it says this. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. He's omniscient. He's, uh, and, and that characteristic of God never changes. His attributes. He's always true. He's always faithful. He's always just. He's always merciful. He's, he's always wrathful when that needs to be meted out. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. He is immutable. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever because Jesus is Jehovah God. And as God, he never changes. And as God, his attributes remain the same. Now, I want to close with this. Satan is always trying to attack the deity of Christ. One of the major attacks Satan levels always has been is the deity that Jesus is God, Jesus Jehovah. Think of it. The Mormons. Jesus is not, he's just another God. Because a Mormon, can, in, their, in their theology, any Mormon can become a God. JWs, he's just a God. He's not the God. He's not Jehovah God. Uh, in the Islamic world, he, he's a prophet, but he's not the son of God. Um, but you, you, you know, the guy I just mentioned, that former teacher, 
denies the deity of Christ. One of the major places that Satan attacks is the deity of Christ. And he makes inroads into the evangelical world. One of the uh, attacks in the evangelical world that started, uh, oh, I should have come up with more of a date, maybe 20 years ago or so, is called open theism. And, and it's based on logic. In other words, if God is all-powerful and God knows everything, why would he let the Holocaust happen? Why would he let all the suffering that happens in the world take place? Well, the only answer is that God doesn't know everything and he's not omnipotent. And that's the only way we can really answer this. This is what the open theists say. And ultimately they deny the character of God, Jesus, and they deny his deity. This is a definition of open theism by Christian apologetics and research ministry. Open theism teaches that God does not know future events, that he can be surprised by them, that he can make mistakes, that he learns what will happen as people make choices. It's not the God that the Bible teaches, but these are evangelical. There was a response to open theism by Craig Williford, uh, who at the time was the president of Denver Seminary, and their response, the seminary's response. Today, uh, he is the president of Multnomah University in Portland, Oregon, at least when I looked just recently on that. Here's what, when he was the president of Denver Seminary, and their response, part of what they said. Open theism is defined as a cluster of views that follow from the key premise that the free future choices of human beings cannot by definition be known by any being, including God, until they happen. Thus, while God can and does determine with certainty that some future events will occur, because he wrote those down, Open theists believe God's omniscience does not mean that God can know all future events ahead of time, especially those that God had chosen to allow humans to determine. In other words, God doesn't know what we're going to choose to do. He doesn't know, hey, if you're going to choose to go out to eat tomorrow night, or what restaurant you're going to... God doesn't know if you go out tomorrow night, if you haven't made the choice yet, are you going to uh, Ruth's Chris... Or are you going to the Golden Arches Steakhouse, McDonald's? <laughs> he has no idea what choice you're going to make until you do it. And then he knows because he doesn't know the future. He doesn't know. That is such, that is blasphemous. That is a low view of God. That is not the scriptural teaching of God. Now, some of the proponents of that view are Gregory Boyd. Clark Pinnock, John Sanders. Uh, Gregory Boyd was a professor. Uh, I'm trying to remember the denomination. Um, it was, I believe it was a Baptist denomination. Um, I can't remember which one. Um, anyway, uh, these are some of the... It is unbiblical. It is wrong. It is blasphemous. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. It's an absolute statement of the deity of Jesus and that he is consistently 
faithful in all of his attributes always. Underline it, put it in bold, write it on, the, on your heart. Don't ever deny the deity of Jesus. It is so, so clear in the word of God. And verse 8 is a challenge. If you have a good pastor teacher who labors in doctrine and lives the life, and hopefully he'll carry through to his death, thank God for him, esteem him, so on. But ultimately, it's Jesus Christ. And our focus needs to be on him. He never changes. Men can, and unfortunately too often, do. Let's pray. And then there's some good goodies for us to munch on. Thank you, Father, for the word of God and uh, such an important truth. Jesus is Jehovah. Jesus is God. May we never forget that. May we never doubt it. May we never question it. May we not have one iota of doubt that Jesus is God, that there's no way that this is the case. He is Jehovah. And burn that into our hearts, burn that into our minds, burn that into our soul, because it's the reality of the word of God. Jehovah Jesus. We thank you for dying for our sins, that we can have life. Bless our fellowship, bless the food. We thank you in his name. Amen. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. Shalom.